starting next week. Uh, but as we come uh, to the text, we find uh, Emmanuel, God with us. The same question we've been asking. What does it take for God to dwell with us? That assumption, I think, is one that we are all interested in, right? Uh, whether we're a believer in Christ, whether uh, we just think about God sometimes, think about why is there something and not nothing. Uh, wherever you are, there's an assumption of this question of what does it take for God to dwell with us? The first is, that seems to be a rare thing. I don't, I don't see God, right? I don't, he's not next to me. I can't place my hands on him. And there's another assumption that we want him to be near us, right? Like, why, why can't we have access to him? So for those asking that question, again, Christian or non-Christian, Christian, we come to this text, and we find the scripture is saying, there is a God who made you, in whose presence we were made to dwell, uh, in whose presence is life and blessing. But humans, as we've seen through our series, have chosen uh, to walk away from God, to act contrary to him, to live a, a life of disobedience, to live a life we call of sin, in defiance of God, independence of him. And by so doing, we've, we've actually pitted God's goodness, the very things that we want God for, his holiness, his goodness, that he is pure, that he is excellent, that he is above sin, be above us, above and beyond uh, this world, but also evil, and that he is pure goodness. We've pitted that actually against ourselves. We've put ourselves on the wrong side, basically. Still God loved us. Still he found ways to be with us. We saw the Old Testament. We saw there were sacrifices that would take away our sin, that we may have a kind of access to be with God. We saw uh, the temple, uh, a physical place in which God's presence could be felt, in which you could commune with God. You could know him. We saw priests who interceded for us. We saw the cleanliness and purity laws, kings, all these things put in place that we could have a kind of access to God. Despite our sin, God was working through it. And those things all worked for a time, they worked to an extent, but ultimately they unraveled. Because ultimately sin would touch even those things. Ultimately, we, the sin that made us un, unworthy to be in God's presence did the same thing to all of these means. It made us unworthy of the means themselves to overcome sin. It made them empty rituals, just excuses to walk away from God again. Now we come through all of this, through the Old Testament coming into the new, through the advent of Christ, through all of this, we're jumping ahead liturgically. We're, <laughs> we're skipping from Christmas to Good Friday. But that's what this series has been doing, is putting all the time together into one story where we can see the whole big picture of the scripture. And so we come to the crucifixion of Jesus in Luke 23. And our question and our problem is that we look at this text and we see maybe only the outside. Uh, we think of the Jesus on the cross for our sins as a trite thing. We think of Emmanuel, w would he die, right? This, the complication of if this is the manifestation of God's presence and he's put to death, what, what hope remains for us? Or we think based in simply just naturalism and simply uh, the sort of scientific modern world we live in, we just think, well, Jesus was a good moral teacher and he taught us good things about God. And it's very sad and unfortunate that he died. But what's really happening here? And I think the text makes it 
impossible to think that this is just a human, ordinary event. As we'll see in a moment, we'll see that Christ has come to tear down the final veil, to once and for all give us access to God, his Father. And so since Christ has torn down the final veil, what this text is asking of us, what, what the scriptures compel of us this morning is that we come to God through Christ. We're going to see three things in the text, the torn world, the torn God, and the torn veil. And we'll get into more of what that all means. But first, let's pray as we come to our God. God, we do come to you. We come to you through Christ. We come begging access. We know that you are merciful, God, and we know that you want to meet with us. We know that you made us for yourself, and so we come to hear a word this morning that assures us that we can know you, we can walk with you, and we can have a future with you. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. We begin looking at the torn world. Uh, you see this in verses 44 and 45, starting there. It was a, now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. Uh, what does that mean exactly? Uh, what is this darkness? A lot of people have spilled a lot of ink over trying to understand what exactly this is. Uh, very simply, the word there is actually eclipso. So you might simply think this was a solar eclipse, right? That's where our word eclipse comes from. The word in the Greek simply means to fail, but here it's talking about the sun's light failing. And those solar eclipses last as many as a few minutes, not three hours, which I think is curious. Could it, could it have been a storm? Could it be clouds or rain? There's no mention of any of that. It would have been, he would have had plenty of words to choose from to tell us there was a storm or clouds. What's going on here is something more miraculous, less repeatable, right? Less observable, reproducible in our ordinary experience. Um, there was a study done, uh, I forget where it was done, but it was done by a man named Martin Wikelski, and he surveyed a number of animals in a very earthquake-prone area. 18,000, mo mostly minor, earthquakes he studied, and he found uh, something which has been sort of an urban myth, but now that we're starting to see there's actually some scientific backing to this idea, in which animals seem to have the ability to sense that there's an earthquake coming up. Uh, or potentially, as well, a storm. They seem, somehow, they seem, I don't know if it's vibrations in the earth, there's some scientific explanation of, the, of this. But very simply, I'm going to derive a, a principle that's more theological in nature that we look at this text and find, which is the creation is responding, right, to something going on. It seems to have a sixth sense or some ability to sense that something significant is happening. I think that's what we're seeing in this text. We're seeing the earth knows, the sun knows that something significant is happening when Jesus is on the cross. Creation is groaning or coming apart at the seams, it's being torn. Uh, what, what does it mean that the great sign that God at the foundation of the world put in the sky, the sun itself, is flickering? as Jesus is on the cross. In another gospel, we actually get a sense that it's not only the heavens, but actually the earth that is groaning as well. 
We read in Matthew 27, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. See, a natural phenomenon, but with supernatural significance, because it goes on to tell us, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is not simply shifting of tectonic plates. It's not that something got in the way of of the sun's light coming to us. Something extraordinary is happening at the death of Christ. Why this darkness, we wonder. Again, not just a weather report. It's telling us Jesus' death has profound supernatural meaning. Why were heaven and earth being torn at the moment of Jesus' death? It's because God himself was being torn. It's because the maker and sustainer of the world himself was on a cross dying, gasping out his final breaths. Jesus famously said leading up to his death, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. The one who said those words is here, and here is heaven and earth flickering out, right? Groaning under the weight of it. Here's God made manifest in humanity, his perfect and sinless character revealed to us in every way, in all its holiness and perfection. In every respect he was been tempted, yet without sin. And the world is coming apart because it's losing him. It's losing its maker. So if the world is being torn because God is being torn, we have to ask them, why is God being torn? Let's look at the torn God and starting in verse 48. You have, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Notice, first of all, he's highlighting witnesses. Again, he's telling us this really happened. Here's the people that saw it. A strange way to testify, right, to to someone's death. Why would he have to prove that somebody died but that they died in this way? The crowds beating their breasts, what are we to make of that reaction? Is that it might be that they thought, this is terrible, this is an awful thing, this, is a, this was a grisly death, or even perhaps this was a miscarriage of justice. But then they return, guess that's over. His acquaintances, the women of Galilee, just watching. It's like a train wreck they can't turn away from. It highlights they saw it, they watched it. It's not just we lost Jesus, a great teacher and a great man, even. It was a dark day that day. That's not what this text is telling us. It's not telling us everyone thought it was just a dark day. He's saying Jesus' death had supernatural power and signs associated with it, and these people saw it. And the one I think who tells us the most, you see in verse 47, is the centurion. This is someone I've, I've thought about quite a bit from time to time. This centurion, now keep in mind, he's a centurion, what is he doing? He's overseeing this execution. He's on the side of the people enforcing Jesus' death. And this centurion, when he saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. In, uh, you may have seen Christian iconography, Western Christian iconography, stained glass, things like that. You see depictions of what happened during the life of Jesus. 
You can see pretty much any, any passage you might find in the Bible, there's probably an icon somewhere for it, right? Some stained glass somewhere depicting these things. In the Western tradition, we put sometimes halos you see on people. So there's a, a glowing about their head, right? And these halos, usually, of course, the Lord Jesus has one. But oftentimes, a lot of people that are significant, St. Peter, Mary, someone like that might also have a halo in that they are revered, they are significant. In the Eastern tradition of iconography, they actually have a different meaning for halos. And it has everything to do with what this man says here. Because if you, f if you look up this scene in Eastern iconography, you will see the centurion enforcing the death of Jesus has a halo on his head. I want us to wonder for a second why that is. <laughs> is this a holy man, right? This centurion of, of the empire that's enforcing the death of Jesus? Think for a second about this. What, what halos mean in the Eastern tradition is that the lights have come on for you. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're a major character, a main player, a great man or woman of faith. It has to do with, do you know who Jesus is? And when this man says, this man is, right, is innocent, literally it means righteous there. Uh, in, other, in other texts we have, the centurion actually says, surely this was the son of God. And I put before you, they're the same thing. Because here is Jesus dying for the crime of he a man making himself God. That was their language. He thinks he's God. And here's the man saying, he is innocent of this crime. He said he's God and he's not guilty. That's true. It's the same thing he recognizes. Jesus' own prayer from earlier in this chapter is answered. When he cried out another one of his sayings on the cross, the first one we believe, according to church tradition, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The lights went on for this man. He found out what he did, and he found out who was the Son of God in his very midst. Why was God sent to die? Why was he torn apart on a cross? Why would the Lord of life make himself vulnerable to death? The answer lies partially in the fact that the cross itself, brutal as it is, and if you've, again, seen some of the depictions of the Passion of the Christ, any of these things, considering the actual physicality of it, as brutal as that is, is not the principal suffering that Christ is enduring here. The sun was failing, the earth was trembling. Those things aren't noteworthy, right, just because of the physicality of it. It's not that Jesus died, oh, and by the way, there happened to be an earthquake. Those are signs pointing to something even more significant. The cross itself even though we often speak of it as shorthand as being the central thing, is not the central thing. The actual physical suffering Christ endured takes second seat to what is supernaturally happening. You know, Christ went hungry and thirsty and homeless in his life, and he never once complained. Never once, he said, you know, came to, came to the woman at the well, he left without ever drinking from that well. His disciples brought food to him. He said, I have food to eat that you do not know of. Physical suffering he can endure. What is happening here that he cries out, I thirst? For the first time. 
What is happening that he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? See what is spiritually happening here. It's described here in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ controls us. We have concluded this, that one has died for all. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why was God being torn apart? It's because he was reaching into your heart and your soul, into my heart and my soul, and taking your sin upon himself. And then what he did with that sin, he did not simply take it from you. He took it into the one place our Old Testament passage tells us, you can't go if you're a sinner. He went behind the veil. With your sin in his hands and on himself, he walked into the presence of the Holy God, the one thing we've been saying sinful people can't do. He who knew no sin had become sin. The place that even the high priest couldn't go but once a year, and even that involved a sacrifice, involved death. We will never understand why the righteous one, the Son of God, was on that cross until we see him saying to us, truly, truly, you are righteous. You are the Son of God. If the reality of that pierces you in this moment, maybe you've already a follower of Christ, maybe you were until this moment counting him your enemy, like the centurion. Listen to the Spirit who bears witness with yours. Flesh and blood cannot teach this to you. Science cannot explain this. Right? All, all of our shortcuts, all, all, all of our works cannot do this. There's only one thing, and it's Christ on the cross. I didn't think this up. <laughs> I never would have thought of this. The ancient church didn't make this up. God was torn apart for you. And he did it to tear down the veil between us. So let's look at that veil. With knowing that, seeing that in all of its fullness, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Top to bottom, again, as Matthew had said. A vertical opening, like a door, right? And notice it's torn. The veil isn't simply lifted. It's torn. It's a permanent adjustment to the veil. Just as Christ's wounds remain in his resurrected body, right? That's there forever. Salvation is accomplished. Redemption has begun. And from this moment of Jesus' death, bleeding out now into our lives, God has begun the final disentangling of sin from every corner of creation. And there's way more to that than we're ever going to cover in this sermon. But... As we, as we think about this, and as we think about this final veil being removed, we do want to ask, what does the torn veil mean for us? What, how do we live different now in light of this? How do we dwell here where God has chosen to dwell with us? That veil isn't the only veil in the Bible, by the way. The, in the Old Testament, even, there's a veil over Moses' face that's referenced again in the New. There's, there's the main veil, the veil that God holds between him and man, but each of us has our own kind of veil. And it says in 2 Corinthians 3, their minds were hardened 
For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. How does that come off? It comes off through faith. And that's what I want to put, is the only uh, testimony we didn't consider yet in this passage is Jesus' own. In verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Our simple answer is to be united with Christ and how he's united with us, entrusting himself to God. That word commit could also mean entrust. And when he says my spirit, that actually means literally breath. And so when it says he breathed his last, it's as if he's saying, I commit my, my life breath to you, and then he breathed it out to his God. He lived from the first moment, he, from the first breath he took to the last, he entrusted himself to God. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he would, suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What does this mean? I'm just gonna shotgun blast a bunch of thoughts at you at this point. But from Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, this was our confession of sin uh, and assurance, by the new and living way that he opened uh, for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's some things this means, that Christ went on the cross for you and tore down the veil. First of all, this means that your every sinful thought, word, and deed as a believer in Christ, as those who entrust himself to him who entrusted himself to God, the Father, that's spiritually dead. That's gone for you. You have absolute forgiveness. And because of that, your access to God is unlimited through Christ. There's, the veil is permanently torn for you. Here's, here's another thing that means. God's holiness now works for you instead of against you. Right, the holiness has been sort of the problem, so to speak, if you want to even put it that way. God's holiness, his perfection, his goodness, the fact that he is against all evil has, because of our sin, become a problem. We can't access him through the holiness, but now what God has done is taken his holiness and the person of Christ and actually met the righteous requirement of the law through him for you. So God has met the need of his holiness with his own holiness made manifest in Christ for you. Uh, here's another thing that means the righteousness and sonship of Christ is yours through him, through what he's done. And finally, the wrath of God is poured out on Christ and not a drop of it remains ever for you. Is this good news? I feel like it's good news. <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. So what do we do with this? How do we live with, in light of this reality? Again, 2 Corinthians 3 when one turns to the lower, the veil is removed. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're becoming more like him the longer we look at him. You are forever forgiven, Christians. It can't count against you. 
And those old ways in which you once walked, those are dead. There's nothing for you there anymore. You have a new life in Christ. Here's some things I think that we, that we ought to do with this. First of all, there is absolutely no greater offer that's coming, right? There's no greater possible offer, right? This is the resolution of it all. There's nothing that can keep you from God through this. If you're waiting around, if you're on the fence, if you're thinking, is this for me? I don't know, I still have some things to think about. There's, no, there's nothing better that, that can be given from God than his own son for you. And then another thing we need to do with this, I think, is to see yourself spiritually connected to Christ. See yourself an extension of his manifestation in the world, an extension of his holiness. Live in that, walk out of that. And then finally, brothers and sisters, if the blood of Jesus fully satisfies God's wrath against you, his holy, just, good wrath, if that satisfies it, you are not more holy than he. Forgive yourself. Right? For those who say, I know God forgives me, I just I can't bring myself to forgive myself. The blood of Jesus satisfies God's wrath for you. Your standard's not higher than his, right? Forgive yourself and forgive your brothers, those and your sisters, for those for whom the blood of Jesus is shed. If God forgives them, how are we to find fault? Let us live out of that holiness. Let's come to God through Christ. Let's give thanks to him forever for what he's done. He's removed the veil. There's nothing to separate us anymore. At Christ's death, the world was torn because God himself was torn for you. And that he did that, that there would be a way through the veil into God's presence, a permanent, everlasting way, that a holy God could redeem a sinful people, even me, even you. Because Christ has torn the final veil, let us come to God through him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you. We stand amazed at the power of the cross how perfect, how everlasting, how righteous, how effective, how triumphant. Nothing could be better than this. We pray that your spirit would stir up our affections, that we would see the truth that Jesus has taken our every sin behind the veil, the one place where it can't go, to bring us there, to suffer the death that we deserve but to bring us into everlasting life and everlasting union with you, our Heavenly Father. We pray in his name that we would be like him, beholding his glory, being transformed from one degree to the next, more and more like you. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Come now to a time of the celebration of communion, the celebration of of the Lord's table. It's fitting that we should have communion on the day in which we consider Christ's death, for he says, as often as we celebrate this meal, we proclaim his death until he comes again. And so we come proclaiming that this death, not, not to celebrate death, not because we delight in death, certainly death is the enemy, but we see that his, his death is for us, his body is for us, his blood is for us. And so we come to the table together, a place where Christians, those who have entrusted themselves to Christ, those who have entrusted themselves to the Father through Christ, we come to this table 
to celebrate him, celebrate what he's done. This is a table in which we're not uh, supposing that we're representing or redoing somehow the sacrifice of Christ. This all harkens back to what Christ has done truly for us. And so this isn't a, a superstitious thing. This isn't a, a time in which the body and blood are somehow physically here. The elements are transformed. All it is is that we're remembering what Christ has done and Christ truly uses that by his spirit and presence here to renew our faith and to enliven us in him. And so we come to this table together. Those who believe in Christ, if you're someone who you're still thinking it through, this is a place where you're welcome. Even as we call you to believe, you're welcome here. You're welcome to stay and figure it out. You're welcome to stay and wonder, what is it that happened on the cross? What, it, what does that have to do with me? Uh, we do hope you come forward even for a blessing, uh, even to reach out and say, hey, I'd like to meet. We, all of that is welcome here. We do ask that you refrain from this table for it is a table of faith and only those uh, who come by faith are worthy to partake of this supper. And so we, we ask you with the admonition of scripture to let these elements pass you by. And yet, if you're a Christian, no matter how your walk is going, right, this is a table for sinners. If you're in this moment saying, I repent again and I trust in Jesus, you're welcome to come and take uh, the body and blood to participate in these things as they are spiritually called. And so we're gonna have a moment of prayer. We'll have words of institution. And then we'll invite forward uh, the elders and the uh, musicians who are serving. And so why don't you pray with me as we come to the table. Lord in Christ, we thank you that you dwelt with us, 